Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Anderson. During this podcast, Dr. Nancy Rowe, Professor of Medicine and Chief in the Section of Hepatology, Associate Director of Solid Organ Transplantation, and Richard B. Capps, Chair of Hepatology at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois, discusses practice-changing viral hepatitis data following the AASLD 2022 conference. For more information about Dr. Rowe and for a link to the full online educational program, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now, let's get started and hear what Dr. Rowe has to say about practice-changing viral hepatitis data from AASLD 2022. I'm Nancy Rowe from Rush University Medical Center, and I'm giving my top line thoughts on AASLD 2022. Well, the first thing is that there were, again, no amazing breakthroughs. I think we all hope that what we see for hepatitis C is mimicked in hepatitis Delta or hepatitis B, and although we do have very attractive drugs in development, they don't seem to be making that short-term high cure rate um, efficacy that we saw for viral hepatitis C. I think that one of the biggest messages was that we still have a lot of work to do, that between the pandemic and probably other unhealthy behaviors, such as an increase in alcohol use disorder and alcoholic hepatitis, there's still an incredible burden of liver disease, and viral hepatitis continues to contribute to that. We had an entire session on hepatitis C, and although most of us think that hepatitis C is no longer that exciting... It was really refreshing to look at the concentration on things like microelimination, recognize that people who use drugs are still driving a lot of the new hepatitis C, and looking at some of the alternative models, whether it's non-specialist care or whether it's linkage to things like the needle exchange services or alternative ways of bringing hepatitis C therapy to the place that these patients are. These were all very successful models and reminded yet again that you do not have to be a hepatitis C expert or hepatologist to have very good cure rates for viral hepatitis C. There was an interesting program that also looked at attempting to recall individuals with known hepatitis C. That's really important because we have a lot of screening that's identified individuals with active disease, but we tend to lose them. We don't necessarily lose them for obvious reasons, so we there wasn't any significant trend across these patients. So sometimes they were still very nicely being followed in primary care, but yet had not been linked to curative services for their hepatitis C. Um, sometimes we do recognize that location of screening is going to make the individual harder to co-locate or to link to care. Things that are in urgent care or ER screening programs are a little bit harder to engage in curative services just because those patients may not be well connected to that facility or to a provider. But you know there were ways of calling and reaching out and sending messages through the electronic medical records, sending letters. And all of these are able to capture a certain percentage, but none of them was such a you know an overwhelmingly successful alternative strategy that you really have to look at what's going to be best for your own healthcare system. When we think about hepatitis B and hepatitis delta, um, screening is still a big limitation. You can't actually control or cure something that you don't know that you have. And so hepatitis B and hepatitis Delta have still been risk-based screening in the United States. And those are still big limitations because risk-based screening doesn't really work very well. We we forget about what risk factors. We may not ask our patients. A lot of them are 
our geographic risk factors, and those are a little harder for a provider to identify when they're having a clinical visit. But when a person is identified, they still don't always get linked to management. We saw that with hepatitis B, and there were also highlights within the conference of areas where maybe our guidelines break down. There was a very nice you know, presentation on looking at patients with hepatitis B that fall in the indeterminate um, treatment guidelines. So our guidelines are really good at identifying patients that need therapy. But when they talk about patients that may not be eligible for treatment, so someone that might have viral replication, that has normal ALT, or does not have significant fibrosis, or maybe has significant fibrosis, but very minimal replication, these are all places where our guidelines are gray. And when they looked carefully at these, they found that the risk of liver cancer in some of these gray zones was elevated. And there was a suggestion that treating these individuals in the gray zone decreased liver cancer rates. And I think that's really important because that's starting to advocate for more permissive guidelines and less restrictive guidelines. You know, when we talk about some of the general information that is maybe not viral hepatitis specific, fatty liver disease is always going to be a, you know, a significant burden. Um, We see this with viral hepatitis as well as our patients without viral hepatitis. And there was some, you know, nice information demonstrating that the non-invasive tests really do perform similar to histology and identifying individuals at high risk for complications. So as we start to look at new fatty liver disease treatments, non-invasive tests may underperform. So it depends on, see a better way of saying that, is it depends on the treatment and what the treatment efficacy or the, the goal for the therapy is going to be. If you have a treatment that's meant to decrease early fibrosis or eliminate inflammation and steatosis, a non-invasive test that's designed to identify an individual at high risk for liver complications may not be the best tool to triage individuals towards treatment. But if the tool is to triage individuals towards longitudinal management that are at higher risk for liver complications, it does seem that these non-invasive tests do work. And that's really important because um, you know they were originally looked at for things like viral hepatitis C, and it does seem that broadening their, their use across other diseases within non-viral hepatitis does seem to be successful. I think that the last thing I would kind of look at was the use of statins. And so we've long known that things like aspirin, statins, even metformin, seem to have signals in decreasing liver-related morbidity and mortality, even though we don't use these to decrease a person's liver um, morbidity and mortality, more to use them for the reasons that they're actually approved. There have been consistent signals across multiple big databases that these might have some role in decreasing liver cancer rates or decreasing all-cause mortality in patients with liver disease. And statins, again, were highlighted at ASLD as decreasing the risk of death in an individual or at least short-term mortality in individuals acute on chronic liver failure. One more reminder that we don't want to be afraid of agents that might decrease cardiovascular disease, which is a common cause of morbidity and mortality in patients with liver disease because we're afraid of liver-related complications, that rather that this class of agents seems to actually have liver-favorable effects and that we want to make sure that we use them appropriately for patients who have that risk. Thank you very much to Dr. Rowe, and thank you to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the full AASLD 2022 conference coverage program on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes for this episode. 
And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you.